0: Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, Episode 18. Welcome back. Before we begin, I'd like to mention you can follow me on Twitter at Cunning of Geist, as well as on my Facebook page at The Cunning of Geist. The same um, handle for both Twitter and my Facebook page. And for more on Hegel, um, there's also the Hegel Study Group on Facebook. I know many of you already belong, but if you'd like to, you're not a member and you'd like to join, please please check it out. In this episode, we're going to discuss Hegel's philosophy in light of the mystical law of three and the Christian Trinity. You most likely have heard of the Christian Trinity, but you may be asking, what is the mystical law of three? Well, I will explain in a moment. And also, we'll be discussing hegel's philosophy in in terms of how it relates to all of this hello this is gregory novak this is the cunning of geist episode 18 welcome back before we begin let me mention that you can follow me on twitter at cunning of geist as well as on my Facebook page at Cunning of Geist. And for more information and discussion on Hegel, there's also the Hegel Study Group on Facebook. I know many of you are already members of the Hegel Study Group, but if you're not, uh, you're welcome to join. In this episode, I will be discussing Hegel's philosophy in light of the mystical law of three, as well as the Christian Trinity. Now, you most likely have heard of the Christian Trinity, but you may be asking yourself, what in on earth is the mystical law of three? And I'll explain that in a moment. The relation between um, Hegel's philosophy and the mystical law of three and the Christian Trinity is that they all seem to be referring to the same thing, which is the dialectical nature of being. In the most previous episode, I showed how the Hegelian dialectic is not just a method of philosophical inquiry, but is in fact the opposite. It is Hegel's rational demonstration of the dialectical nature of reality itself. Reality, fundamental being, turns out to be dialectical, as Hegel has shown. Now, in this episode, I'm going to go outside of Hegel and uh, his philosophy and to see what else in religion and in the mystical wisdom traditions, what they have to say. Is there anything in common there um, with Hegel, with the Hegelian dialectic? What I've found is that, in fact, there there is some commonality. There is some correspondence. Uh, we did a full episode on Hegel and mysticism in episode 7, and, and Hegel and Christianity in episode 5. What I'll be discussing here today is that there is a clear correspondence of the Hegelian dialectic to both the notion of the Christian Trinity as well as the mystical law three. And if you haven't figured it out yet, I'll let you in, in on a not-so-secret secret. It concerns the number three, obviously. Now, it, 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 as an interesting aside, I, the, the term Hegelian triad is, in fact, in the Marion-Webster Dictionary. And The Hegelian dialectic, that term is not. So Hegelian triad is actually more commonly used than Hegelian dialectic. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the Hegelian triad as thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And as we've discussed here before many times, this is a completely incorrect meaning of the Hegelian dialectic. Hegel never used those terms. As we've said before, abstraction, negation, and concretization are more in line with what Hegel means. However, many continue to wrongly attribute these terms to Hegel. And there's good reason for this. Many philosophers have done the same. This also includes Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. But putting this misunderstanding aside, the notion of the Hegelian triad persists to this day, and it's probably what Hegel's most famous for. And it's not really surprising. Um, it's Peter Benson correctly notes in a 2003 article in Philosophy Now, and I quote, It can't be denied that Hegel was obsessed with dividing everything into threes. You don't even need actually to read his books to recognize this. You only need to look at their contents pages. Each is divided into three sections, and each of those sections is further divided into three subsections, which themselves are often divided into three sub-subsections, Even individual paragraphs, sometimes even individual sentences, frequently have three distinct parts. Why this obsession with the number three? Did Hegel believe, as many people have, that there is a mystic meaning to this numeral? Hegel wasn't, in fact, a mystic, at least not in that sense. He didn't believe in mysteries at all. On the contrary, he thought that absolutely everything ultimately could be explained, and his own philosophy would provide the groundwork for this complete explanation end quote. So it is understandable why people take Hegel's apparent obsession with the number three, as Benson calls it, as meaning something deeper. Now let's move away from Hegel for a moment and focus on what I'm calling the mystical law of three. I know it sounds pretty strange, but let's get into it. Perhaps there's no one more responsible for popularizing this concept the mystical law of three than one George Gurdjieff. We've talked about him Before a couple times, but some background. Gurdjieff was a Russian mystic philosopher, spiritual teacher, and writer. He was born in Armenia in 1877 and died near Paris in 1949. He became well-known in spiritual circles by a book by one of his pupils, P.D. Uspensky, and the book is entitled In Search of the Miraculous, and it was published in 1949. And there's a very interesting side story here, and let me take a moment to tell you. Um, I want to read to you a a quote from a popular spiritual New Age author, Marianne Williamson. And by the way, you may have heard of her. She was also a United States 2020 Democratic presidential candidate um, when they were still doing the primaries, and there were eight or nine people in contention. She appeared in several of the early Democratic primary debates, you may have even seen her. However, when In Search of the Miraculous was reprinted again in 2001, Marianne Williamson was asked to provide a foreword, And I will quote from this. I quote, I know that I am not alone in having had my soul stamped by certain books at certain times. There are authors and writing that transform you as you read them. And for me, In Search of the Miraculous was such a teaching. If I were to choose one word to describe its influence on my life, that word would have to be foundational. For the generation growing into its spiritual maturity in the 1960s and 70s, reading Uspensky was mandatory reading. If you hadn't read In Search of the Miraculous, then you hadn't learned your mystical basics. Certainly, In Search of the Miraculous became a touchstone of 20th century spiritual literature. End quote. Williamson here is describing perfectly what this book meant to me. I mean, I could have written these words myself, probably not as well as her, but that's exactly how I would uh, I would describe it. And it's probably similar for many um, in the baby boom generation that would call themselves seekers. The book um, tells about Ospensky's meeting Gurdjieff and then learning the occult system that Gurdjieff was teaching at the time. The system is often called the fourth way. And just very quickly here, uh, Gurdjieff saw four methods for enlightenment. First was physically through the, the body. He called it the way of the faker, using an Indian term. Secondly, the finding enlightenment through um, emotional means, through faith. This is the way of the, uh, the priest. And thirdly, there's the intellectual method of enlightenment through reason. And this is the way of the yogi. But fourth, uh, there was a fourth method, which is superior to the other three separately. And that's the harmonious development of all three methods. So all three come into play, sort of a dialectical method um, to, to reach enlightenment. And this is the method that Gurdjieff taught. But perhaps more on this later in some other episode. But let's get back to what we're talking about here. Gurdjieff claimed to have secret teachings from an ancient called Brotherhood, located in Southwest Central Asia. And he called this the Sarmung Brotherhood. Uh, he claimed the Brotherhood was, was now Sufi, but um, Su- Sufism is the mystical side of Islam. But he claimed that the Brotherhood traced its roots prior to Islam. In fact, uh, Gurdjieff describes um, their roots as going back to pre-Sand Egypt, which is a time before the Egyptian dynasties, a very long time ago. So when he re- arrived on the scene in Russia, he claimed to have knowledge from this brotherhood, which extends back before recorded time. And he would um, give speeches and give lectures, and Spinsky started taking, going to these lectures and befriended Gurdjieff, and the rest is history, as they say. Um, just as an aside, there have been a few more recent accounts of contacts with this Sarmung Brotherhood. However, it's very important to say that um, these contacts, as well as Gurdjieff's own original story, may be apocryphal. Um, and it's not that Gurdjieff never made up stuff. This is clear from an honest analysis of his writings. And it should also be noted that he, uh, he often used these fanciful stories as a teaching advice. But let's move on to the point of bringing up Gurdjieff. Central to his system was something called the law of three. Uh, This is the law of world creation, and it was comprised of three parts. What he called the holy affirming, the holy denying, and the holy reconciling. Essentially, this means that any event that happens, any event, is a result of these three primal forces interacting. It is a law of creation. For an event to happen, all three forces must be present. And these forces can change in their um, in how they appear. And this third force, the Holy Reconciling, is not just a blending. It's not half of this, half of the affirming, and half of the denying is in th- synthesis, but it's a force in its own right, and a very important force. Um, it's a, a triangulation that captures both the affirming and denying. It transcends both at the same time. Sound familiar? Obviously, this is a correspondence to Hegel's approach, where the sublation both cancels yet preserves and lifts up the abstract notion and its negation into a new concrete reality. Now, why, why is this important? He says the law of three, it's law of creation. Here's why it's important. He also said, Gurdjieff said that um, mankind today is essentially third force blind. And that's um, what's creating a lot of the problems here. What he means is we are prone to dualistic thinking and not realizing that the three forces are necessary for any manifestation. We usually only see two opposing forces as opposed to seeing what will reconcile them, transcend them, sublate them. For example, let's take uh, cause and effect. A lot of people only see cause and effect. Um, if you're third force blind, that's all you see. When in actuality, there are three things at work, an active cause, a passive cause, and then the resulting effect. This is what Gurdjieff was teaching. An example of this is, um, you can find it anywhere, but a good example is in the game of American baseball. Um, a pitcher throwing the ball is the active cause. Um, it starts things going, if you will. Nothing happens until the pitcher throws the pitch. Then there's a batter, and the batter's swinging is the passive cause. And the swinging of the bat, this passive cause, leads to a result, an effect, which is either a hit or a miss. So that's a way to look at it from from three forces, not just two. A second example of being third force blind is what I call dichotomies without resolution. This is where there are only two sides arguing, fighting with no search for a resolution. Our current political climate is a good example of this. I'll get into more of this in a a minute. But first, Gurdjieff is not the only um, occult or mystical tradition to emphasize the law of three. The mystical order of the Rosicrucians uh, clearly speak to the law of three, much in the same manner as, as Gurdjieff and their teachings. One additional tradition I should mention—sure, there are many—but um, and that's the Kabbalah, the Jewish Kabbalah. If you you know the Tree of Life, you may have seen it. It's um, it's got a ten Sephiroth and sometimes eleven. There's circles that are arrayed in a geometric figure. Um, it's hard to describe in detail um, in a podcast, but it, it as I said, it consists of ten Sephiroth and there's a hidden one as well. Um, on top, there's a Upper triangle pointing up. It's got composed of three Sephiroth. The top is the um, uh, Keter crown, and below it on the right is Wisdom, or in Hebrew, chokmah. Um, and uh, b- below it on the left is Understanding, or Bina in Hebrew, and that's on the left. So that's the top triangle. And um, below that there are two downward pointing triangles, and then one final sephiroth at the bottom for a total of ten. Now, uh, this tree of life, um, the middle sephiroth is meant to balance the right and the left side. And below um, wisdom and understanding, there's a sephiroth in the middle called dot, And it, it means knowledge. And it's, knowledge is meant to balance the wisdom and the understanding. Again, that's the top triangle. If you go down one, which is downwardly pointed... There's mercy and judgment. Now, we're getting a little more closer to concepts that we understand. This is a big thing you hear all the time, the need to balance mercy and judgment. And this is balanced in the tree of life by the Sephiroth um, Teferoth, which means beauty. And the Kabbalah suggests that the key to spiritual growth is the middle path between each polarity. Now, by balancing in this middle path, I don't mean averaging the two as we've said before in, in other examples. Um, each balancing Sephiroth is itself a full Sephiroth, its own thing, if you will. And um, interesting here, the, the terms wisdom and understanding, they may sound familiar to you. We've talked about the German words Verstand and Vernunft, reason and understanding in English. They play a similar role here as in Hegel. These two approaches must be sublimated, as we've discussed. Let's get into this in a, a little more detail with respect to Hegel. Um, as we've seen in the Hegelian dialectic, Hegel believes that understanding verstand, or as we know now, the left brain thinking, only sees two sides of things and not the whole. It tends to categorize things, look at e- things either or, put things in separate categories where the right brain, Hegel he wasn't aware of right brain, but the what he calls reason uh, vernunft um, pulls things together. The left brain uh, Verstahn sees dualities mind, body, subject, object, heaven, earth, male, female, parent, child, life, death. You can go on and on. But this is not truth. Let me quote Hegel here on this. I quote Dogmatism consists in the tenacity which draws a hard and fast line between certain terms and others opposite to them. We may see this clearly in the strict either or. For instance, the world is either finite or infinite. But none of these two it must be. I'm sorry, one of these two it must be. The contrary of this rigidity is the characteristic of all dialectical truth. So he's saying here that the world is is um, it's not either or, and that's a that's a as a very rigid way of, of thinking, and is not the truthful way of thinking. And that the quote that I read is from the encyclopedia. Hegel's Encyclopedia of the Philosophical Sciences, paragraph 32. For truth, you need reason for the right brain as well. You need the triad of the Hegelian dialectic. Now, we've discussed earlier there are problems when you only see things in a dualistic nature, when you are third-first blind, as Gurdjieff says. What this means is we often put ourselves on one side and think... If we apply more pressure, if we try harder, this will result in victory over the other side. But the other side thinks exactly the same thing, and here's the error. Both sides do not look to a third way out, but they dig in their heels harder. Most wars are a result of this left-brain-only type of thinking, of being third-force blind, of not using both our left brain and our right brain together. Now, uh, let's move on and talk about probably perhaps the most famous triad in the world today, and that's the Christian Trinity. First, a few words um, on the Trinity. Um, It's a concept that developed in the first few centuries following the life of Jesus. And it's important to recognize it's not really part of the New Testament at all, save for a few mentions that may have been added into the New Testament uh, well after the fact. And it's had its own complicated path in being developed within the church, very complicated. And there remain differing interpretations of the Christian trinity to this day among different Christians and different sects and so forth. But let's cover the general notion. The trinity, I'm sure you know, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or some say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father represents God, the Creator, sort of the Old Testament God, um, the son now is Jesus Christ, God's son, and is the historical individual figure that lived on earth. And the Holy Spirit is now what is here to guide us on earth. So that's that's a very short rundown. Um, and as I've said, there continues to be much debate within the church itself as to the meaning of the Trinity, such as are there actually three gods here, a father god, a son god, and a spirit god? Or the three aspects of one God, or some combination of the above? In addition, it gets further complicated by the fact that the Trinity itself seems to be in sharp contrast to Old Testament teaching, that God is one. Judaism maintains the oneness of God in its important daily prayer, the Shema, which begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. So if Christianity is essentially building on the Old Testament, it must address this. Is God one or three? Many Jews today still believe this is the root difference between Christianity and Judaism. And this has led to much discussion and debate, as I said, within the Christian community, because it's Christianity is supposed to be built upon Judaism. Jesus, in fact, was a Jew. His disciples were Jews. So that's why this is a big issue. But let's relate this all back to Hegel. There's a strong parallel of the Trinity, the Christian Trinity, to Hegel's overall system in the encyclopedia. As we've discussed, Hegel's encyclopedia is structured in three parts, logic, nature, and spirit. Let's review these each quickly. Logic is for Hegel, and I quote, the exposition of God as he is in his eternal essence before the creation of nature and of a finite mind. That's from the Science of Logic, page 50, Miller Translation. Logic can therefore be viewed as God the Father, the creative principle, if you will. Nature, on the other hand, is the othering of this logic, its negation. And we've discussed this move in detail, particularly in episode 15, was the world freely created. This is also symbolized in the narrative of the birth of Jesus, where the word rational thought becomes flesh. Spirit is the third element in the act of becoming of logic, reason, rationality, freedom, in the world of nature. And this is symbolized by Hegel in with the Holy Spirit going into mankind, into all people upon the death of Jesus. Now, Hegel has a unique take on Christianity. We covered this in detail in Episode 5. To refresh your memory, um, his non-traditional take very quickly here, the Old Testament father dies as a result of the birth of Jesus. So God now moves from, from heaven, if you will, to earth in in one Jesus. So God is now man. And when Jesus dies, the spirit is now released into all of us. This is why Hegel called Christianity the revealed religion. spirit is now within all of us to call upon. So in summary then, we have spent two full episodes on the Hegelian dialectic, and we've shown that Um, It's a result of Hegel's work, not a method that he uses to investigate the nature of being. He he has shown that being itself, reality, is dialectical. It's always in a state of becoming. But I think this episode has shown that Hegel is not alone in anticipating this. Many of the great spiritual traditions have a similar teaching. Um, We've concentrated on the teachings of Gurdjieff. We touched on the Kabbalah a little bit, Rosicrucianism, but there are more. And there's a strong correspondence there uh, to the Hegelian system. Now, let me close by a quote, again, from Peter Benson, the fellow I quoted earlier. It's from the same article mentioned previously where he equates the Hegel spirit and the Christian Holy Spirit with love. I quote, In book 15 of his treatise, Augustine writes, If the love whereby the Father loves the Son, and the Son the Father reveals in an ineffable manner the union between both, what more fitting than that He, who is the Spirit, common to both, should be properly called love? So the Holy Spirit is not so much a separate being, that vague and symbolic dove that appears in Renaissance paintings, but the embodiment of the love between the Father and the Son. There is the Father the sun, and also the relation of love between them, which is spirit. It's exactly as Hegel understands the word, end quote. And earlier in the same article, um, Benson states, I quote, an isolated individual might be, might be a consciousness, but only in relating with others can the level of spirit higher than that of mere consciousness be reached. This is the level which includes all the phenomena of art, religion, and society, end quote. And this echoes Matthew eighteen twenty. I quote, For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. And uh, when Jesus says here, my name, he means here the Holy Spirit, which is love itself. And uh, when people gather together in love and produce works in love, spirit lives and grows. That's it for this episode. I'm Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. Thanks so much for joining us. Follow me on Twitter and on my Facebook page at Cunning of Geist. See you next time.